The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Good morning. I'm not Pastor Jeff. In case you didn't know, uh, I've always been a little intimidated about preaching in Pastor Jeff's pulpit, not merely because he's a faithful preacher, but because I was always afraid the pulpit would be a little high for me and I wouldn't be able to see over it. Uh, but we're good. Mount Holly campus, we will have a shorter pulpit for people like me. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Casey. I serve as church planning pastor to Mount Holly, and it is a joy to be together as we continue our series in the Psalms this morning, particularly the King Psalms. For the last several weeks, we've seen the King highlighted on several different uh, ways. Psalm 22, we see the suffering king. Last week in Psalm 23, we saw the shepherd king. And now this week, we see the sovereign king, the king of glory. And the context for Psalm 24 is speculated by some to have been the entrance of the Ark of the Covenant as it was brought from its temporary dwelling place into the temple in Jerusalem. However, the New Testament church would have clearly identified this psalm as ultimately looking forward, not merely to the presence of God symbolized in the Ark of the Covenant, but the presence of God realized in Jesus made flesh. And what I pray this morning is that we will see together that Jesus is the King of glory and that he must be worshiped. So Psalm 24 is where we find ourselves if you don't have a Bible, I invite you to turn to page 458 in the chair Bible. As we read together, I invite you to stand as we read God's Word. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Let's pray. King of glory, would you... Instruct us this morning. Would you cause our souls to be lifted up to you alone? Would you magnify your name among us and would you humble us as your people? I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. 
So this psalm flies right into the face of our hectic lives, of our busy lives, as we often live as if we're the center of the universe and everyone and everything should revolve around us and our schedules or our kids' schedules. Constantly toiling, never satisfied, filled with anxiety because much of what we devote our thoughts to is, is insignificant in the grand scheme of things. But this psalm shows up for us this morning, sits us in the chair and says, think about the grand scheme of things. Consider the grand king of all things and consider arguably the most important question that we must deal with. And that question is, what does God require of me? If there's a God, and there is, there's a heaven, and there is, what must I do to get there? What must I do to be with God, to dwell with God forever? And that is the question that we're presented with in this psalm. But before we get to that question, David begins this psalm highlighting that the king of glory is creator in verses 1 and 2. David begins with, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. This psalm literally begins with these two words, to Yahweh. Those are the first two words. It's as if David is saying in bold print, all caps, to Yahweh is the earth and everything in it. Emphasis on Yahweh. It's his world. We just live in it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That means the earth and everything you see in it is God's. Totally. The world and those who dwell therein. The world, in verse 1, is a synonym for the earth. And those who dwell therein represent the entirety of life. David is communicating in verse 1 that the Lord possesses universal ownership over everything and everyone in the entire earth. I love this quote by Abraham Kuyper. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That is true. So this begs the question, why is everything and everyone under the sovereign authority of God. Verse 2 tells us, For because he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The simple answer is because God created it. The earth is the Lord's because he made it. You are God's because he made you. Now, Christian, we are are owned by God in an intimate sense in that we have been purchased by his blood, redeemed by Christ, united to God through faith and repentance. But in another sense, God owns everyone. He owns everyone. The picture in verse two is not an unstable earth floating on water, but an established, organized creation upheld by a sovereign designer. Notice the building 
carpentry imagery that you see here, okay? I am merely an Ikea carpenter. That's what I like to call myself. I can open the instructions, put the screws where they need to be, out pops a bookshelf. God's the real deal, okay? He designed it all. Genesis 1 and Hebrews 1 point to the reality that God created and upholds everything by the word of his power. The only reason that you and I came into existence and the only reason that you and I maintain existence is because God speaks it so, is because he is upholding at this very moment your life. David is communicating in verse one and two that the Lord possesses universal ownership over everything and everyone because the Lord created and continues to maintain everything and everyone in the entire earth. So a couple of questions before we dive into the rest of the psalm. Why is this important? I think one, for the Christian in this room, this is comforting. Christian, consider the reality that our Father owns it all. I cannot overstate that. I don't have words to fully express to you his universal ownership. Every molecule is his. Every atom is his. Every cell is his. Every person is his. Every dollar is his. Every child is his. Every grown person is his. Every family is his. Every government official is his. Every speck of dust on this stage is his. Nothing is outside of his sovereign reign because he made it all and he owns it all. He is not anxiously surprised by the news this morning. God doesn't turn on the TV and be like, I can't believe that happened. He is not scared of terrorists. In fact, he laughs at them not because he thinks they're funny, because he knows their end. And he knows that though they might exercise some sort of imaginary, real, both of those words together, authority, he is in charge. His plans are not momentarily halted by hurricanes. He is not overwhelmed a bit by the craziness of your life or everyone else's for that matter. This news is also humbling because it tells us as we begin this Psalm, you're not in charge and we need to hear that. Wonder why we need to read our Bible daily. At a minimum, the Bible tells us you're not in charge and that's a great way to start your day. I'm not in charge, God is and I, I need that. We live in a world that says that we've arrived, that we're arriving, that the human race is only getting better. Look at all that we have accomplished. I mean, think about giving an iPhone to someone 30 years ago. There's a story that I heard in a bad sermon a long time ago, and I figured I'd share it with you. Uh, it's a fictional story. It's not real, but... There was a couple scientists that told God, God, we're just like you now. We have arrived. 
You are no different than us. We're on equal playing field because we can create a human being out of dirt. So God said, all right, create your human being. So the scientist scooped up some dirt, put it in his bucket, headed back to the laboratory. And as they're on the way back to the laboratory, God stops them and says, get your own dirt. (laughs) I thought that was clever. I say that to say that no matter how much we as human beings think that we've arrived, God's in charge. It's his earth. We just live here. God, I love the book of Job. God doesn't speak the whole book. You just hear this interchange of sort of foolishness. And then God finally speaks up in in, uh, chapter 38 and 39, and he just pelts Job with these truths of his bigness who he is. Where were you, Job, when I did all of this? And Job's only response in chapter 40 is, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I'm, I'm gonna stop whining God, put my big boy pants on and just trust you because you're in charge. And that's how God starts this Psalm. I'm in charge, you're not. I'll talk, you listen. But he is good. He is good. And we'll see that as we continue in the psalm. So why begin the psalm this way? Because this is foundational. Arguably the most important words in the Bible are in the beginning God. We need to understand who this God is before we can ever begin to approach him in worship. Which leads us to the next section of the psalm in verses 3 through 6. We see the king of glory is holy, which leads into the all-important question in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Notice the marvel that I think David intends to create in our hearts, that the sovereign God of verses 1 and 2 can actually be approached by sinners like us. We serve an approachable God. Now we're going to unpack what that looks like, but we serve, we have an approachable God, an approachable King. The hill of the Lord here, the holy place represents the presence of the Lord. The Jews would have, would have associated this most likely with the Holy of Holies, the place where only the high priest went in once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. This is a big deal. Who ascends to that place? Who goes to the presence of God? As I was thinking about ascending and who reaching heights, I I just did a little research on Mount Everest this week. Everest is around 29,000 feet above sea level. Approximately 800 people attempt every year to summit Everest. Around 4,000 have done so successfully and around 300 have died attempting to summit Everest. The last year where there were no known deaths was 1977. So I say all this. First, if you were thinking about climbing Everest, just to kind of talk you out of it, I'm not. Crowders is good enough for me. Those, those steps, man. I say that to say that the hill of the Lord makes Everest 
look like an anthill and not even a significant one that you see and you think, I should probably spray that. Not a big deal at all. Insignificant compared to the mountain of God. Who shall ascend the mountain of God and who can stand in his holy place? That word stand, the Hebrew word is kum, which is a legal word, meaning to make or maintain one's case in a court of law. Who can stand one's own ground and one's own merit in the presence of God? Who can successfully make it into the presence of God and then rightfully stand their ground before the Lord? These questions remind me of Isaiah 6, the prophet's experience. This is the prophet of God, a man of God, gets a glimpse, just a little glimpse of the glories of heaven. It says the veil of his temple filled, the veil of his robe filled the temple. Angels are flying around God all the time, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. That's their job forever because the Lord is so holy. And Isaiah gets a glimpse and first words out of his mouth are, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So who can reach these heights? Who can actually stand their ground in the presence of the Lord God? David gives us four sobering qualifications in verse four. says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So I wanna cover these quickly. Clean hands here represents innocence, outward practical holiness, external conduct. But this external conduct must be connected to internal character. He says, clean hands and a pure heart. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God, they shall see the King. External deeds of righteousness, clean hands that flow from a heart of impurity and disinterest in the God who created it are not sufficient. Jesus addressed this particular issue with the Pharisees in Luke 11. He said, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? The implication of Jesus' words in Psalm 24 here is that your external conduct can appear very commendable while your internal character is full of greed and wickedness. And David says, you don't dwell in the presence of God without clean hands and a pure heart. I'll say it this way, you only dwell in the presence of God with pure conduct that is connected to a pure heart. It's the only way. The third qualification is he who does not lift up his soul to what is false. To, to lift up one's soul means that our affections are stirred. It implies trust and hope. To what is false means idols, that which cannot satisfy worthlessness, vanity. It's the opposite of Psalm 25, one that says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In verse four, the issue is lifting up souls to what is false. 
This means one must not have undivided affections. One's affections must not be stirred by vanity or worthlessness. One's affections must be stirred by God alone. And the fourth qualification is one who does not swear deceitfully. This is getting at truthful speech, speech marked by integrity. Yes is yes, no is no, reliability, trustworthiness. And the two things worth noting here as we reflect on these qualifications. First, we must not approach the Lord God nonchalantly. He is to be revered. If he has these kind of requirements to step in his presence, what kind of God are we talking about? He is holy. We must not take for granted and think of what we are at right now is an event called church where we participate as spectators. What we are at now is a family gathering around, in a sense, the throne of God, enjoying and exalting Jesus together. That is what we have gathered to do And some of you who don't know Jesus, you're here and you're watching. And we pray that you see Jesus in us. But as we gather, we want to come with clean hands and a pure heart. We want to prepare our hearts for what's about to take place on Sunday mornings. We want to prepare ourselves for gathering throughout the week in our growth groups. As we gather as the family of God to delight ourselves in the Lord together. He is not to be approached lightly. He is to be revealed And we are come, we are to come with prepared hearts, prepared lives, prepared minds. So much so that when our neighbor sees us walking in, as they're driving down Garrison and they see you walking in, they think, they're the real deal. I don't know Jesus, but I could see Jesus in that person. When your neighborhood sees you go into your host home for growth group throughout the week. Uh, They're the real deal. But here's the, the more sobering thing, the more challenging thing, and most importantly, that is that none of us meet these requirements perfectly. We all fall short what it takes to dwell in the presence of God. Let's just be honest with ourselves. Let's be honest about our hearts. We don't need to read these qualifications and think, I did pretty good today. I mean, it's only 11.44, pretty good. I'm at least better at these than my neighbor or my friend or my kids. I'm doing all right. We don't meet these. We fall miserably short. Our hands are not clean. Every sin that you've ever committed has stained your hands and you might not see just how yucky they are right now, but be assured that in the black light of God's holiness, no sin goes unnoticed. Our hands are filthy. Our hearts are not pure. Jeremiah rightly says in chapter 17, verse nine, that the heart is deceitful above all, desperately sick. Who can understand it? We live in a generation and a culture that tells us to follow our hearts. Jeremiah says, it's sick, it's impure, it's messed up, you can't trust it. Some of you, 
sadly, have likely been tricked into thinking that your morally upright life and plentiful material blessings equate to favor with God. That couldn't be farther from the truth. And outside your life, exterior, it looks pretty. It looks clean. You think, God likes me. But inside you know there is a war raging in your soul. You feel the greed. You feel the jealousy. You feel the wickedness. Not only does God see all of our external sins, he sees every bit of our internal ones as well that brood daily in our hearts. But for now, they are not oozing out of our life and off of our lips. But God sees it as if we actually committed it physically. He knows he knows our sinful thoughts as if we spoke them. Our hands are dirty, our hearts are impure, and our souls are totally divided and constantly stirred by that which cannot satisfy. This may be one of our biggest issues in the American South in a culture of instant gratification that we are constantly captivated by stuff and not Jesus. And our souls are constantly divided. Our affections are constantly pulled. Not only that, our lips. Our lips are prone to deceit as we seek to make up for the fact that our lives and our hearts and our souls don't measure up to the requirements of God. We know we don't measure up. We feel it. We know we're not good enough. And so we lie to try and somehow justify our inadequacies. But even our lying lips only serve to heap more judgment on us as we don't ascend the hill of the Lord, but we dig ourselves into a deeper and deeper hole that we cannot escape. That's the bad news. That's the situation that every person in this room, every person in human history finds themselves. Let's just be honest with where we're at. Now would be the time to rear up and be proud and say, that's not me, that's not true. But that's not where salvation is found. Salvation is found in surrendering and being honest with who we are and who God is. And the reality is, the good news is, we read this psalm on this side of history. We're reading this psalm not looking at the Ark of the Covenant ascending the hill to rest at Jerusalem. We are reading this psalm pointing us to the Word made flesh who descended the hill of the Lord, who came out of the holy place of God, who lived the life we cannot live, meeting all the qualifications of God as a real person in our place. Jesus alone has clean hands, for we read of him in Hebrews 4.15 that we have a high priest we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted like we are, but he's better than us because he's without sin. He has clean hands. Jesus alone has a pure heart. In John 1:14, we read that the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. And what oozes out of his heart, his pure heart is grace and truth. Jesus alone has undivided affections because Jesus tells us about himself in John 8, 29, that he always does the things that are pleasing to the Father. That is 
what Jesus' entire life was about, pleasing the king, pleasing the father. And Jesus alone is truthful for Peter writes of him in 1 Peter 2.22 that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus meets all the requirements, which means that Jesus gets the reward of verse five, which says he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Jesus, of Jesus, the father says, I am well pleased. Jesus possesses all the favor of the father. Jesus has met all the requirements. And you say, well, that's great for Jesus, but what about me? Because I still don't measure up. Turn to Philippians chapter three. Philippians chapter three, verses eight and nine. Paul has just listed off his spiritual resume outside of Christ. And Paul has a better spiritual resume than every person in this room. This spiritual resume, Paul was more than happy to present to God had he died before meeting Jesus. Had Paul died before meeting Jesus, he would have presented this resume to God with extreme pride. Look at here what I did, God. Thinking that God would say, man, Paul, that is awesome. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And then... On his way to Damascus, Jesus knocks Paul off his high horse. Jesus shows Paul who's in charge. And then it leads Paul to write something like this in Philippians 3, verse 8 and 9. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And here's why it is so good to gain Christ, because I can be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here's what Paul is saying here. I'm just gonna scrap my spiritual resume and take Jesus's because his is far better and he offers it to me for free. I can be found having a righteousness that's not my own, which will never stand in the presence of God. I can be found having his righteousness that's not my own simply by faith in Christ. The good news of the gospel is that we don't meet the requirements of God to dwell in his presence. So Jesus descended the hill of the Lord and he lived the life that you and I could not live. He not only lived the life that you and I could not live, meeting the requirements of God, he died the death that we deserve, satisfying the wrath of God that was headed our way. So by faith in Jesus, God counts our sin atoned for and our hands cleansed and our hearts made pure and our affections satisfied in Christ and our lips declaring his praise. We meet the sobering requirements of verse four by the grace of God given to us through Jesus Christ, his son. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why we gather every week as the family of God to celebrate the fact that what we have is not our own. It was purchased by God himself and lavished on us in love. And so we see the result of grace in verse six. 
Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Here's what's cool. Notice, we're not reading of just one individual anymore. The he of verses four and five has now changed to generation. An entire group of people. One man, Jesus of Nazareth, kept God's requirements completely and perfectly. And an entire group of humanity was made like was made like him by faith. This is what happens to people who have received the righteousness of Jesus. He makes us who were not a people, who were living isolated, individualistic lives, pursuing the American dream apart from Jesus. And he makes us a people changed by his mercy to seek the face of God together as a people. He doesn't save isolated individualistic people to become isolated individualistic Christians. No, he draws them into a people, his people. The face of God here means the favor of God. We seek the face of God. And we don't have enough time to fully unpack why Jacob is thrown into this psalm. There's several alternate translations because the word of there in verse six is actually not there. It says, who seek the face of the God, Jacob. Gotta think that Jacob is thrown in there. David uses that name to make the point that the true people of God, the true Israel of God, who have understood the great mercy of God, seek the face of God with the intensity and urgency of Jacob in Genesis 32, 26, when Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What Jacob understood is the same thing that every follower of Jesus in this room understands, that apart from the grace of the Lord God, we have nothing. We have nothing. Understood what Peter understood. Jesus was telling a group of people who were following him. I love this. When, when huge crowds started following Jesus, Jesus would draw a line in the sand to find out who really follows Jesus. And he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have life, which is really weird. It is. And it says that many who were following him around left. We don't want any of that weirdness. We were just tagging along for the miracles. We, Jesus asked his disciples, are you gonna leave too? And Peter said, where else are we gonna go? You have the words of eternal life. There is nowhere else to go. We would rather leave everything to have Jesus because in Jesus, we have everything. God is so good. God owns it all. God created you and I to love and enjoy him forever. We instead rejected him and fell in love with his stuff and not him. Instead of leaving us in our sin, though, and the dissatisfaction, misery, and destruction that sin brings, God himself descended his own hill God himself left the glories of heaven and moved into our slum of a neighborhood. He hung out with us 
He had dinner with sinners like us. He loved us, but he never sinned with us. He never sinned at all. Totally perfect, totally pure, totally innocent. But he was rejected, and the king of the glories of heaven was deemed more unworthy than a murdering scoundrel like Barabbas. He was deemed so unworthy and so despised that he was thrown out of the city, hung on a cross to die, and chunked in a tomb to rot so that we could go about our idolatrous lives in rejection of the king. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that Jesus wins. That is the summary of this psalm. Jesus wins. That is the summary of the Bible. Jesus wins. That is the summary of the entirety of human history. Jesus wins because Jesus is the king of glory who is creator, who is the holy one satisfying the wrath of God, living the life that we could not live. And Jesus is the king of glory who is a warrior Verses seven through 10, David writes, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. And then there's a, it repeats it again. Many commentators believe that this is a, another entrance into the city. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Here's how we know that Jesus wins. Three days after they laid him in the tomb, he walked out alive and well. Death could not hold him. It was impossible for death to hold the king of glory. Then Jesus spent about 40 days appearing to his disciples and preparing his disciples for the mission that lie ahead. And when the time was up, he led his disciples, and Luke 24 tells us, out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. In the last several Psalms, it's a little tricky. Is this, is this about an earthly king? Is this about David? Is this about God? This Psalm, verses seven through 10, make it perfectly clear. This is about the king, the king of kings, the king of glory, the Lord of hosts. Get the image that David wants to put in our minds here. The king entering his city after defeating the enemy He is strong and mighty. He is mighty in battle. Jesus ascended back into the glories of heaven. In Luke, it gives us a little snapshot of what was happening on earth. It says his disciples worshiped him. But can you imagine the party that was happening in heaven as the king of glory after defeating our greatest enemy, sin, death, and hell? Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory, that Jesus the Christ may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, the Lord who conquered what you and I could not conquer, sin and death and hell, and who rose victorious over it all. The reality is, though, 
there's going to be another entrance back into the city. The king of glory will step down from his throne when the time comes to go to war one more time. Jesus has dealt the death blow to Satan and his minions. Jesus has conquered the penalty and the power of sin, but Jesus will step down from his throne, descend the hill of the Lord one more time to rid the world of the presence of sin all together. Look at Revelation 19. This is the growth group passage this week. And I encourage you, some of us see Revelation and we get really intimidated. This isn't Revelation 19, 11 through 16. This isn't intended to confuse us. This is intended to compel worship and excitement and anticipation at what is yet to come. John gives us a glimpse. Verse 11, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse, not a donkey this time. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. He's the Lord of hosts. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is not a wimp. A lot of our old Sunday school pictures kind of portray Jesus as a, this hippie that pets lambs all the time. And he is meek and mild and he is gentle. And I, we need that. But this Jesus is a warrior. He is the Lord of armies. And he will reascend the hill of the Lord on that great day, but not alone this time. Following the king will be his army. Following the king will be brothers and sisters, will be his bride that he has cleansed, that he has made pure, that he has satisfied, that he has purchased for himself. And we get in on that party. And I think we'll all look at one another on that day and think, man, was it worth it. Jesus is always only worth it. Always. So what? Just have one question. Am I trusting in Christ alone, the King of glory, who ascended the hill of the Lord in my place? Really quick, three groups of people that I want to address in this room. The first is the group of people that are pretending that there's no hill. Pretending that there's no hill to climb. There is no God. There is no holy place. I'm my own God. I'll do my own thing. I'll make my own name for myself. And can I just say to you, I pray that God, God's grace would open your eyes to the reality that there is a hill, that you can't climb it. Would you turn to Jesus? Would you repent and believe the gospel and receive his righteousness? The second 
group of people, and I think this is the predominant group of unbelief in our area, is that those who think that they can climb the hill on their own strength, and their own merit, this is why we are planting churches in Gaston County. Because the majority of people who are not Christians in Gaston County think they're Christians and think that they are working their way to God when in fact they are far from God. They don't know the King of glory. They don't know the Jesus of the Bible. What, if that's you, if you're in this room and you think, well, at least I'm on the hill. Those people over there just deny God altogether. If you think your spiritual resume is impressive, measure it up to Jesus's because that's what God's gonna do. Can I just ask that you let go of the hill, you surrender it all to Jesus and be found in him, not having a righteousness of your own that will not stand, but having his offered freely to you by faith in him and the third group of people, those who, of us who are in the room trusting Christ alone, who ascended the hill of the Lord in our place. My encouragement to you is 1 John chapter 2. John writes, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John wants us to live clean lives, to have pure hearts, but he knows us all too well because we mess this up all the time. But if anyone does sin, get this, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, satisfied the wrath of God. He gives us his righteousness and now he stands as our advocate before the Father, our righteousness there, pleading our case, always living to make intercession for us. But get this, Jesus doesn't just positionally make us holy and righteous before God. He gives us his spirit to make us practically righteous, to make us practically live lives of holiness. John continues in verse three, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Jesus calls us to follow him in righteousness, to live lives of purity, to live with clean hands, to have undivided affections and lips that speak truth and praise of our God. He gets all the glory, our advocate. Keep trusting Jesus. Keep following Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is God's world. It is not ours, but God has made himself approachable through the blood of Jesus, the warrior king who has conquered our great enemies. Will we come to him? Will we be a generation that seeks the face of God? Let's pray. Oh God, King of glory, would you humble us before your cross? Would we... Would you give us grace to come to you as needy sinners who have no life apart from you? May we see you as such and see ourselves as we really are, Lord, and approach you through the blood of Jesus with joy and anticipation, God. 
Now would you fill us out and fill us up and send us out as we take the message that you have lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserve to die, that other people can be made righteous because you have ascended the hill of the Lord in our place. God, would you do this work of grace in our hearts and in this city? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.